you have a lot of interesting takes. I mean, I try. Yeah, except for this film, you swung and missed, but it's okay. Hello, everyone. Welcome to All the Film Things. I'm your host, Elizabeth. And today's topic is the film The Wrong Man, directed by Alfred Hitchcock from 1956. And my guest today is Cole. Hello, Cole. What's up? Glad to be back. Thank you for coming back. I am loving the podcast. I'm so happy. I'm going to have to renegotiate my contract to be a co-host. I mean, that would be... Go from zero an hour to zero an hour. <laughs> and yet you'll be number two. And I have like... You have a rankings? Well, I have a document to make sure I don't ask too many people so often, you know, to like uh, to switch it up. No, ask me as often as you like. <laughs> okay. I talk about movies not on the podcast. Mm-hmm. And like I talk to my fiance mm-hmm. who cares nothing about movies and she just sit there and like nods and yep okay cool thing cool babe i don't know what you're talking about we can give her a shout out hi sarah hey i want you to come on with cole sometime <laughs> yeah that she would be so terrified <laughs> but no here's something that i'm terrified about what's that i'm terrified to find out what you thought of the film because earlier we're like i'm not too crazy about it. the film made me terrified of our criminal justice system in america really no, not exactly, but it was kind of, here's what I'll say. Henry Fonda was good, of course. Obviously. But it was kind of boring at parts, Elizabeth. I'll be honest. Like, it was a good, it was a solid movie. I probably won't watch it again. Probably not a rewatch for me. I got a little bored at times, and I was like, you know, what's the point here? Where are we going? And I get it. It's the 50s, so it's like, cut him some slack, you know? But this is the guy who made Psycho, Elizabeth. Oh, I know. This guy made Psycho. Mm-hmm. This, to me, it looks like two different directors made this movie. And I liked Psycho a lot more. Um, yeah, I just got bored. And then like by the end, I was like, oh, that wasn't that dramatic. I felt like we spent a long time in the film building up towards a drama, building towards some excitement, some thrilling twist. And then, nope, just what you thought was going to happen. I don't really agree with that. You don't agree with it? No, because at the end, we get that overlay of the close-ups of Mm -hmm. the innocent man, Henry Fonda, and then the guilty man. It shows that he was innocent all along, Mm -hmm. but the film doesn't end all happy because Mm -hmm. his wife is still unwell. Well, she got well, though. It tells you at the end, two years later. I know, but that's not true. Oh, they lied? That's one of the only things that's not true to life about this film. The real story is that she was never fully cured. Why did he say that then? I don't know. That ruined, that, like it would have been, I don't know if it ruined it. I guess it made me happier about it. I was like, because I was like, dang, that sucks. But but then I was like, oh, that's better. She got better. Mm-hmm. But that was kind of unrealistic. I don't know. It was weird. But I figured he didn't do it. We all figure he didn't do it. Mm-hmm. And then they prove at the end that he didn't do it. And I was thinking the twist was going to be that he did do it. And then he was lying to everyone all along. And I was like, this is going to be interesting. I wonder how he's going to pull it off. And then it's like, nope, just what you expected it was going to be is what happened. And then because there was no twist at the end, I was like, well, there was nothing it built to, you know. Do you often find older films more boring? No, not at all. I I like older films. My other Henry Fonda film that I lo- I've seen is 12 Angry Men. And I love that. And that came out around the same time, like a year later. A year later. Yeah. Isn't that Which crazy? Is it is interesting that he did two films. I thought about that afterwards. I was like, oh, is 12 Angry Men a sequel? 
Is that <laughs> is that why he got his motivation to overthrow the criminal justice system? <laughs> That's a good like connection though. That's cool. Yeah. No, it was just I don't know. I was bored. Wow. I was waiting for a big twist to like get me going, and I just kept waiting and waiting, and it just never got going for me. So I'm sorry if I'm hating on your favorite film, Liz. No, it's not my favorite film. I gave it an eight out of ten, but it's one that really I saw it the first time. It was June 2021 Mm -hmm. I saw it, and I was just blown away because this is one of Henry Fonda's best acting performances. It's an Alfred Hitchcock film that's based... What was that? I do not think it's his best acting performance. I'm putting it up there. Uh, 12 Angry Men is obviously... You're saying it's top five? Top five, yeah. Is it top three? I'd have to think about the other ones. Um... I need to rewatch Grapes of Wrath because I don't feel like I appreciated it enough. I didn't see it. I've only seen two. Two Henry Fonda films? Two Henry Fonda films. You told me you were a big Henry Fonda fan. And you were like, oh yeah, yeah 12 Angry Men. That's yeah, that's, that's, why I'm a big, that's why I'm a big Henry Fonda fan. I liked that movie. Oh yeah. my God. He has a nice, silky voice. It makes you feel calm. Exactly. In all three of them, Henry, Jane, his daughter, Peter, his son, they all have these distinct voices. And they're all just great voices. Yeah. When I was watching Jane in, in more recent films and in interviews, I went back and I watched Barefoot in the Park, and her voice is the same. I was shocked. And Peter Fonda, you've seen some of his films, right? Easy Rider. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. I don't know if I've seen Peter Fonda films. I think we had this talk before. We probably have. I like talking about the Fonda fa- I'm a big fan of the Fonda family. Fondas. Oh, yeah. You're a fond of the Fondas. Haha, <laughs> good one, good one. In 2020, I watched a bunch of Jane Fonda films. 2021, a bunch of Henry Fonda films. This year is the year of Peter Fonda. And I'm just so interested in this family. Like, even just how film changed between Henry and Peter. Like, think about it. Henry Fonda did studio films, and they were all kind of, you know, the same way of making films. It's all studio, it's all done a certain way. And then years later, his son comes around Mix Easy Rider, which completely changed the film industry and allowed more independent filmmakers to create their own films. And there was a little bit more, how do I say it? There was less censorship. They showed things that weren't in film at the time, weren't allowed. Mm. And it's one of those big films that really changed the industry in the late 60s, early 70s. Midnight Cowboys, one of them, Bonnie and Clyde. And it's just fascinating to see like within the family, Henry having this incredible career of all these studio films. And then his son just comes around and is like, all right, we're going to change some things. Mm-hmm. And then he did. And yeah. now we can have independent films. That's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, Tell me something new. Is, you said as a Hitchcock film, you prefer Psycho. Yeah. I think this is only my second Hitchcock film. Too. Really? Yeah. I'm not well versed in my older movies. I will, I will admit, I've seen a good amount, probably. But not, like, super well-versed. You should watch Vertigo. Yeah, is that another? That's Hitchcock? Mm Mm-hmm. North by Northwest, is that the one where there's, like, that scene in the bathroom and he switches suitcases and he comes out? Maybe I'm thinking of something else. North by Northwest, there's some famous moments in that. Cary Grant being chased by this helicopter in the middle of nowhere. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I I know what you're talking about. That's Hitchcock? Yeah. Okay. I think that's my favorite Hitchcock film, but... If Vertigo wasn't spoiled for me, then Vertigo would be my favorite. 
Interesting. I'd have to revisit it and give it some more time, I think. So as a Hitchcock film, you put Psycho ahead. Yeah. Henry Fonda, there's again two. <laughs> 12 Angry Men was ahead. I talked to my dad last night. He had told me before he was a big Henry Fonda fan. And then, like, I asked him, I was like, oh, well, what are some of the movies you like? And he listed, like, three. And he's like, maybe I haven't seen that many Henry Fonda movies. Maybe I just like Henry Fonda. Which films did he? He said Grapes of Wrath, uh, the one with his daughter. He said that was his best one. My, both my parents agreed that that was his best. Really? Yeah. Hmm. My mom really liked it. And I didn't even ask her, like, her favorite Henry Fonda film. And she jumped in. She's like, that one was a good movie. No one ever talks about that film, but it's really yeah. good. Well, I remember a few years ago when Jane Fonda got an award, like a, a Lifetime Achievement or something like that. They showed a clip from it. And they said it was, I remember my dad was telling me, like, the Fondas were saying it was weird. Because they were portraying, like, a father and daughter with a strained relationship. Yeah. Uh, and, um... That's not the case in real life. They're they're pretty close and they get along well. So, Man, Henry, and Henry and Jane. You disagree? Is that not true? That's not true. That's not true. No, that's <laughs> I. That's Elizabeth's over here fact checking. Me. I have done so much research. You don't even know. I've and I've done zero. So, <laughs> well, I'm just I just love all three of them so much. Yeah. I think. So what was wrong? Why didn't they like each other? Well. That is a complex, but one of the things that the film makes a parallel to in his life is a big factor in that. I'll get into that. It is. He was never home for his daughter. He was focused on his career. He made poor money decisions. Well. Or he was just boring like the movie. <laughs> that's, the way you work that in there, that's <laughs> terrible. That is terrible. It's not a boring film. This one is one, it's not that good. So if I ask you to watch another film, would you be like, no, never again, because I... No, absolutely not. No, because I've been there where, like, I'll recommend a movie to someone. And, like, I know, like, it's like I cherish that movie. And then they watch it and they're like, yeah, it's all right. I'm like, oh, I guess that you don't even like me as a person. So you didn't like the movie that I, you know. I just get nervous, especially recommending films to fellow filmies because, Mm -hmm. you know, everyone has their own. Yeah. They know film and they, you know, they have their own opinions. But normally I never fail. Really? Never. Oh, so I'm your f- first failure? So it hurts. <laughs> I'm sorry, Elizabeth. It wasn't the worst film in the world, Elizabeth. It wasn't. Okay. It wasn't. Maybe it's just not for me. Maybe some people prefer boring movies, Elizabeth. Are you saying I prefer boring films? No, no. This, this one. That's it's not boring. I don't think Is this your favorite movie of all time? No. Okay, good. I don't want to trash your favorite movie of all time. If that was the case, it was phenomenal. You don't have horrible tastes. <laughs> was there anything that surprised you? Anything. Anything. No. No. Oh my. Well, so I guess I could say because I was expecting a twist, the fact that there wasn't a twist was surprising. Okay. Nothing in the movie itself surprised me. But there was some weird stuff, but they never explained it. Like all those people that died. Strange coincidence that all the witnesses were dead. And it was also a strange coincidence that his wife went crazy right as she was going to be needed as a witness. So all these things. Well. I think the interesting part of the story was there was a lot of strange coincidences. And a lot of them went unexplained. Mm -hmm. So there wasn't any shocking things. I think that that might have been why I didn't like it. Because there wasn't enough shock value. What what shocked you about it? 
I mean, how Rose went crazy. The stress of the, the court case got to her. We're, our eyes have been on Henry Fonda the mm-hmm. whole time. And then we're not looking at Rose. And then all of a sudden, when they find out that this witness is dead, he can't catch a break. Mm-hmm. Nothing is going his way. And the one witness that they tracked down, it was already hard enough to find her. Mm-hmm. She's dead. And then Rose just starts laughing. Mm-hmm. And in that moment, it just turns even more sinister. It becomes darker. And it's like, what is happening? And then we see she's taken away to a sanatorium. I think that's how you say it. Mm-hmm. Sounds right. But even before that, she was questioning his innocence. She threw something at him. She was freaked out. She blamed the whole thing on her. On her. But was it surprising, though? Or was it just weird? Surprising. Because it didn't catch me off guard. Like, I thought it was weird and odd. Mm-hmm. But it also, like, I could see where it was coming from. I could see where the craziness was coming from because they couldn't catch a break. So I could see what where that would, would drive you crazy. Because you're, you're like, I know... My husband didn't do these crimes. I know he's innocent, but we're just getting screwed over here. So I could see where that would just, I mean, I've had feelings before where I feel like I can't catch a break and I want to go crazy and pull my hair out. I was like, ah, gosh. So I don't, it doesn't surprise me. Um, It doesn't catch me off guard. I'll say that. It is weird though that she went crazy because you think about like the times when you're going to go crazy because you can't catch a break. You're usually able to, like, shake it off and get over it. And she wasn't able to shake it off, which is weird. But I thought it was more... I just think all of it was weird. All of it was Yeah. The fact that he couldn't catch a break was weird. That nothing was going right. Um, I thought the lawyer was weird. Did you get weird vibes? A little bit, yeah. yeah. That never got explained either. I don't know. It was... It felt, like, incomplete, too, in that way. It was like, you bring up all these points... You make all these things weird, intentionally, of course. I mean, you didn't do it on accident. Obviously, this stuff is supposed to be weird. And at the beginning, even with that speech he gives, he's like, this is a true story, but some of it is stranger than the fiction I've written. Yeah. And yet, you never like we never get to the bottom of it, you know? What do you it's mean? Like you because everything, the eyewitness accounts, the how we spelled drawer incorrectly the same exact way. Yeah. It's shocking that he was thrown in jail and the whole court case, the other lawyer is coming up with all these possible reasons as to why he did this and why he's guilty. And it's offending him because he's like, what? Mm -hmm. Nothing is is right Mm -hmm. here. It makes me think Hitchcock is trying to call out the criminal justice system in America. I think so. Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. But it seems like he's calling out all the flaws is like we're relying on eyewitness accounts, which aren't. Always reliable, obviously, as shown by this movie. Lineups, which again, aren't reliable. You're relying on witnesses for that. And it they're kind of like triggered. And they were already like, the witness was tainted at that point. So you'd throw out the eyewitness account after that. It seemed like he was just pointing out the problem with cops in our, our justice system. But you know what it reminded me? It reminded me of a lot of modern stuff. Like what? Um, Most recently, it just popped in my head as we were talking. Have you seen the or heard of The Staircase, which was also based on the true story? I have not. So it's a miniseries on HBO. came out earlier this year, The Staircase. And it was originally a Netflix documentary called The Staircase. And in that, there's this guy. His wife dies. She's found at the bottom of the stairs, covered in blood. 
from a brain injury. And then the cops think it he did it. And then so the documentary like follows him around during the trial. And then he gets convicted. And then like 10 years later, he gets exonerated. Because the DA, I think, in North Carolina falsified evidence to get a conviction. And so a lot of them got thrown out. Mm -hmm. But there was always a question of, well, did this guy kill his wife or not? Because there was particular evidence that could have pointed to him doing it. And the show did a really good job of leaving that ambiguity at the end. They put the documentary aspect into the fictionalized version of the show. Mm -hmm. After, like, he's been exonerated and he's out of prison, they shoot this last interview with him. And he's like, I want to come clean about a couple of things. And one thing was this lie he'd been telling through the whole process that he was bisexual and he was having affairs with men, but his wife was okay with it. Because one of the theories that the cops put forward or the DA put forward was that his wife found out he was having affairs with men, he freaked out, and he killed her. And so his defense was that she knew that he was having gay affairs. And then so at the end, he comes clean. I'm sorry, we're hijacking your... No, I'm just like, this story is insane. (laughs) So then he comes clean and he's like, uh, yeah, my wife didn't know that I was cheating on her with men. So he comes clean about that. And then the director says... Did you kill your wife? And he says, her death was an accident. And then that cuts off the interview, right? Ambiguity, right? And that's what I was thinking they should have done with this movie. Is kind of leave it open-ended. Did the guy do it? Yeah. I mean, we don't know that he didn't do it. I mean, sure, they proved in court and found another guy and put the crime on him. But do we know that the guy didn't do it? I don't know. I didn't read into it. You, You know more than I do. But that makes for a better movie. Here's the thing. Back in that time period, you can't really have an open... Like, there were certain rules. Mm -hmm. If someone did a crime, they Mm -hmm. have to be caught. They have to be face the consequences. So they're limited at this point to what they can do. I just watched a movie yesterday. It's called Remember the Night with um, Fred McMurray and Barbara Steinwick. And you want them to be together, but she is also... A criminal, mm-hmm. so she does go to jail. They have to show there are consequences, just like with rom coms, like Pillow Talk at the time. It had to end on a happy note, and that's why they tie it up in a bow and oh, everything's good yeah. within two minutes. Mm-hmm. Same with Henry Fonda's film, The Lady Eve, yeah. which great film, funny, but the way they ended it, it was ridiculous because mm-hmm. if it was a film today. It would not have been wrapped up in a bow like that, especially all that Barbara Steinwick's character did to Henry Fonda's. No way that should have been okay. They get back together and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. There were just these rules. And part of it, you were talking about how political this film is. Mm -hmm. I don't know how political they were allowed to get with this film. It didn't feel as political. It wasn't, you know, as political as films today can be. But they did it in a way that, yeah, it definitely does speak on the justice system and people getting imprisoned. But it's not, it doesn't feel as political. Yeah. So on a scale of one to 10, what would you rate it? It's not as low as you think I'm going to say. What do you think I'm going to say? I think you're going to say like six. Yeah, it's not that low. Okay. It's a seven. That's good. Yeah. It passed. It gets a C. I consider seven is a good film and then eight and above is great films. Then maybe it's a six. (laughs) That's terrible. We'll keep it at a seven. 
So I wrote an analysis for this film when I rewatched it in October. The first sentence I wrote was a living nightmare shockingly based on true events because it does feel like a nightmare. Yeah. You feel like, I mean, as, as we've said, nothing's going right for him. Mm-hmm. He's thrown in jail. He's a good person. And all these shocking things keep happening. So had you heard about this film before I asked you about it? I think so. I think I'd be probably like just someone mentioned it at some point, probably. Okay. Because this is such a hidden gem, underrated. I've even read other people's reviews online. People consider this very hidden gem for Hitchcock. Which mm. Every Hitchcock film I've watched is great. This one, I think you're going to disagree. I think should be discussed more because it's really good. So Henry Fonda was close, longtime friends with James Stewart. You know who James Stewart is? Jimmy. Jimmy, yes. Jimmy St- from uh, It's a Wonderful Life, right? It's a Wonderful Life. They did a movie together, right? They did, I think, a few. They did the Cheyenne Social Club. Yeah. You saw that? No. Oh. My dad said that was a really good one. And he said Jimmy Stewart was in it. Is that a Western? I think so. It looks like a Western. I've been meaning to watch that one. But James Stewart, his close friend, made four films with Hitchcock. Really? Mm-hmm. Vertigo. Was he Norman Bates? No, no, that was Anthony Perkins. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Which Anthony Perkins co-starred with Jane Fonda in her first film called Tall Story in 1960. He did two films in 1960, Psycho and Tall Story. Oh, fun. Yeah. So something I wrote about Henry Fonda, his performance, I think, is one of his best. And I said, Henry Fonda gives one of his best performances as Christopher Manny Balestero. Oh, how do I say? I forgot to go over how I say his name. Fonda's emotion displayed through facial expressions paired with a dark, heightened, and suspenseful score elevated this film in a way that makes it one of Hitchcock's most emotionally resonant films. So, you've only seen two of his films, Mm -hmm. and I was going to ask if his films ever deeply resonate with you. Psycho definitely deeply resonates. It did? No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) I mean, you're put on the edge of your seat with his films. Mm -hmm. Emotionally resonant? Uh, I don't know. You know, I can can agree that this one probably did... Resonate emotionally. Oh, good. Still boring, but it did emotionally resonate. You can't get past that. No, no. So, <laughs> so it was like I got how he was feeling about not catching a break. I get that. Okay. And I, I can relate to that sometimes. And so I can see where that's coming from. I can relate about frustration towards government institution and uh, just that in general distrust. I mean, that makes sense. So. The film opens with Alfred Hitchcock himself introducing the film. Hitchcock is known for his cameos in his films. In North by Northwest, he's seen in the beginning on a bus or getting off a bus. He always does these quick little cameos. In Marnie, he walked from one hotel room to another in the hallway. But this is different. He introduced the film and he said this is, as you said before, events stranger than fiction. Mm -hmm. And how it's a true story. We don't fully see him as obviously as we do in North by Northwest or Marnie. He's at a distance under a spotlight and he gives this opening, I guess it's a monologue. Yeah, I would call it a monologue. So this is one of, if not the only Hitchcock film that's based on true events, Mm -hmm. which makes it very different for him. And in the 50s, he was making such different films like Rear Window, Dial M for Murder, Vertigo, North by Northwest. Those are all color films, and the tone is very different because this film, The Wrong Man, has more of a gritty look and relentless tone, which I guess he has other films that are more gritty in tone and 
relentless. But around that time, he wasn't really making films like this. Yeah. Especially not based on a true story. It's considered a docudrama because of how close it is to real life. I could see that. They filmed in some of the exact same places that this real story happened. Some of the witnesses were actual witnesses in the real trial. Interesting. And some of the caretakers at the inn and the sanatorium were real caretakers. And I don't know. I didn't read the word nurses, but they kind of are nurses, maybe. I don't know. It's interesting kind of how, like, our society is changed Mm -hmm. in the fact that, like, an armed robbery, like, it's still a felony and everything. But I don't think it would have as much, like, impact and, like, as big of a stir in the community as it did in the film and at the time. Because, I mean, what's armed robbery? Armed robbery is, like, six months in jail, I think. Like, six months to three years for armed robbery. The guy in the movie was a serial armed robber, so probably a little more time. But I think now it's probably like it's six months to, to three years, depending on your record and whatnot. And also, he probably would have gotten off because they violated his Miranda rights. Oh, yeah. They didn't allow him his phone call, which is a, a big one. He didn't have a lawyer. He had a lawyer later on for the trial, O'Connor. Yeah. But when he got questioned and did all those tests... He never got the chance to have a lawyer. The Miranda laws were official later. I don't think the Miranda rights were a thing yet. I think that was in the 60s or 70s. I could be wrong. I don't remember the exact date. But it was in. it's in the Constitution the, or the Bill of Rights uh, protection from unlawful search and seizure and due process and whatnot. And he didn't really get that. It would be a very different film if it came out today. Oh, yeah. And with technology? Mm-hmm. Well, that's what I was saying is like that the staircase is basically, it's very similar in the storytelling and this guy trying to prove that he's innocent and going through all these processes and not catching a lot of breaks, some bad behavior on the side of the police and the DA. So it's very similar. So here's some of the plot. Manny is a musician and the head of a poor family that includes his wife, Rose, who's played by Vera Miles, and two boys. One day, he walks into an insurance office to check how much money he could borrow from Rose's life insurance policy to pay for removing her wisdom teeth. Constance, played by Lorinda Barrett, gives him one look and is immediately nervous. The camera focuses on Manny taking the insurance policy out of his pocket. There's no words. You just see the hand go into his pocket and show the insurance Mm -hmm. policy, a move that makes Constance uneasy. She and the rest of the staff immediately recognize him as the man who held them up twice. Just as Manny comes home, two policemen approach him. They need help solving a case, and Manny fits the description as a robber who has held up several businesses in the city. In two very quick, subtle moments, as the cops lead him to the police car, Manny looks back in concern. And that image is the shot of the poster, I believe. His concern for his family and what the police want from him makes him very nervous, but his trust in the system is what brings him back to being calm. Mm. He trusted the system, And then he was, what's the word? I mean, he wasn't treated correctly, but Mm -hmm. keeps getting worse from there. Taken advantage of? Taken advantage of, I was going to say abused, but is abuse the right word? You could say abused. Okay. Abused by the system. So part of what makes this emotionally resonant is that we are seeing Manny go through the whole process of being arrested. And it's a really demeaning process. Mm -hmm. You know, we see an innocent good man at every step of the way, which is hard to watch. 
Just as Manny is being booked, the police officer read the serious charges that he did not commit. Then Manny is searched and all of his belongings on his person are taken, except his rosary. As he walks towards his cell, it becomes more real and terrifying. The door closes on him and Fonda's face says it all. He looks around at all the... This scene where he gets into his cell, the camera... The camera oh, work. Yeah, yeah, really good. Incredible. There were several moments where the camera movement, camera work was amazing, mm-hmm. and this is one of them. So I wrote, he looks around at the objects, like the bed in the wash basin, and the small cell as the camera simply follows his eyes. Manny gets up as we see his feet as he walks up and down his cell, showing the audience how small and confined the cell is. There was a, is it a shot reverse shot that they used? Which part? In the scene where he's looking at all these things in his cell, and it's back to him back to certain objects the way the camera is focused on the objects it changes there's a word for it I there i saw it on twitter they posted the scene it was i mean better described than i'm trying to describe it now but there was a really cool camera movement in this scene later through point of view shots manny focuses on the handcuffs being put on on the men knowing he is next as he walks More point-of-view shots are used, showing the legs of men walking in front of him as he keeps his head down in shame. Soon after that, the men are moved to another prison, and the incarcerated men, with Manny in the foreground of the frame, undress in close quarters, another demeaning moment. Between showing every step of the process, and then just Fonda's quiet, it's all on his face. Mm -hmm. He's normally talkative, he's strong, and he's a hero. And in this, you're just looking at his face. The emotion is right there. And that's part of what really made me love this film because it was so different from his other work. And it's sad. Mm-hmm. It's just so sad to see him when they close the cell door on him for the first time and the camera just stays on him behind the cell. He is just like the emotion, but he says nothing. It's just all in his face. And that's, yeah. that's why I consider it one of his best performances. I will say the nonverbal acting is really, really well done for the film. A bunch of different scenes. You can... I think mostly with Fonda, but also with his wife and some of the other actors, there's a lot of really good nonverbal acting. From Rose, Vera Miles. Mm-hmm. And from, I think the lawyer had a couple interesting scenes. Really just everybody, you could tell, it's just the like looks on their face is yeah. telling the story. I'm thinking specifically the witnesses, whenever they catch the, the real guy, and then they're identifying, and then when they come out, and they look at him, and then they look away. And then that was a really good nonverbal scene. Yeah. And then the scene when Rose first starts going crazy, the lawyer's like making eyes around the room like, anybody else see what's going on here? Yeah. (laughs) That was a really good part. There's good parts of the film, Elizabeth. See, now that you're thinking about it more. But it's still boring. There are good, obviously, Hitchcock is a great director. One of the best. Yeah. So obviously, but it's just the story just didn't do it for me. I just don't get it. The camera work as well, as you said, a lot of beautiful camera work. I noticed that. The editing. Are you getting to the editing? The editing. I didn't write too much about the editing. Oh, I loved the long cross dissolves. I noticed it a few times, but the one in particular that was really good, where the faces line up. Yes. Yeah, that one was really well done. So he did it a lot, though. I noticed like these are pretty long cross dissolves. At first, I was like, oh, it's just an old movie. They just didn't have fast cross dissolves. Then I realized he was doing it. It was all on purpose. Yeah. I love that shot. I'm a sucker for long cross dissolves. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Anything come to mind as in other films? No, I just like when I do it. Oh, okay. When I, shoot <laughs> it, when I do a project, I'm like, where can I make this like last a long time and be dramatic and stuff? 
That's going to be your trademark in the future. Long cross dissolves. <laughs> so when he's moved to this next jail, it's a much different environment. It's much more intense. It's louder. And they actually filmed in a real prison. And the inmates were actually real inmates. Really? Yeah. So in one, I've seen it twice. I've seen this film twice. I have not caught this. But apparently you can hear one of the inmates yell, what'd they get you for, Henry? Oh, really? That's weird. Isn't that cool, though? <laughs> Are they violent criminals or what? So in my last sentence of this paragraph, I wrote, Through this walk, we can see how heavily caged in this jail is, which leads me to believe this jail is only for dangerous criminals. And this jail, they were heavily caged yeah. in. And in his cell in this prison, he only got like one tiny window, right? Mm -hmm. That leads to another amazing camera movement technique. One of the most incredible uses of camera work is when Manny is put into this new cell. The cell door locks behind him with a tiny window to see through. The camera goes through the small window into the cell with Manny. The camera moves back out of the cell as Manny puts his face against the window, with the audience only seeing his eyes. The camera moves back further as the door opens for Manny. That moment was so... I don't know how they film some of this stuff. Yeah. That moment, and then another camera movement, I think this was in the first jail cell, was when Manny is sitting in his cell with his eyes closed trying to calm down. The camera is handheld and starts moving in a circular motion, with Manny always in the lower center part of the frame and increases in speed to portray his mental state. He is spiraling and freaking out, but trying hard to stay calm. See, I didn't like that part, though. Really? I didn't like the camera moving there. I was like, this is kind of... It just seemed like... It wasn't, like, professional. I was like, this is kind of amateur. Really? Like, shaking the camera. I thought it was really cool because... I mean, it's more popular now to place the subject in the lower center part of the frame. But back then, I never really find that shot often. But he's just sitting there, eyes closed... I mean, it's trying to portray his inner emotions, inner feelings, and how freaked out he is, but he's not showing it, so the camera's going to show it. Yeah. And that's one of my favorite uses of camera movement. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I just keep shooting down all your favorites I today. I know. I'm going to get fired. First day as a co-host, I'm going to get fired. <laughs> Technically, I haven't named you. Oh, sorry. Sorry. I <laughs> jumped the gun. Jumped the gun, yes. Eventually, Manny is free, and when the cell door opens for Manny, we see him reunited with his wife as he has been let free, but he can't stand too well. He is a changed man. When he comes home, he stands at the doorstep looking down at where the cops first approach him, and we get that shot of that same exact spot that he was looking at before. Mm -hmm. That's just where it happened, but do you think he has PTSD? Is it safe to say? Like a form of it. He definitely has some trauma associated with it, like the prison... And why, again, it's kind of like an indictment of our criminal justice system. The prison was not a good environment. And obviously it was demeaning, tore him down and kind of like treated him like a, a savage. So that obviously there's some trauma that's going to come for that, I think. Yeah. I don't know if I would go as far as to say PTSD. Yeah. Well, that's kind of what I wrote. I wrote, found its portrayal of being traumatized and maybe even feeling PTSD is subtle but strong. This exact feeling returns and emotional portrayal happens again. When he and Rose enter Frank O'Connor's law office and Manny sees the door to the insurance office right down the hall. The camera focuses on the insurance office door just as it did in the front of Manny's house. Another moment of trauma. Just having that shot on that exact place. He doesn't go in. doesn't do anything. So when Manny comes home and he's laying in bed, his son comes to talk to him. But his eyes are wide and barely blinking. Another subtle portrayal of being traumatized. Manny sees the world differently now. He has become more pessimistic and more of a half-glass-empty kind of guy. 
Have you seen Clute? Mm-mm. That's with Jane Fonda. That's how she got her first Oscar. Mm. And that's a paranoid thriller. It's from 1971. And her character, Brie Daniels, is traumatized. And she keeps her feelings inside, mostly. Mm-hmm. She doesn't want to show that she's afraid. I think she sees that as a weakness. But we learn her feelings through her going to therapy. I don't think therapy would have been a good fit for this film. But yeah, but just how both are traumatized. Hers is more fear, but they're both really just quiet about it, which I didn't make that connection between the two films until earlier today when I was finishing my notes for this. But it was like a light bulb moment. Oh, interesting. So as we were talking about earlier, when they try and find kind of like their last witness and they search for her everywhere, but they find out she's dead. The dramatic dark score becomes increasingly intense. Then, out of nowhere, Rose starts laughing, adding a disturbing quality to the tone of the scene. Did this scene make you uneasy? I know it didn't surprise you, but did it ever make you like, whoa, what, what's happening? No, maybe it was weird, but I think it was just, I, I acknowledged it was just kind of a reaction to the, the stress and trauma and frustration. So I don't know. Like I said, it didn't catch me off guard. Okay. This moment where she starts laughing marks a shift for Rose's character. The audience and Manny are starting to see something is off about her. It foreshadows a surprising dark turn in the film. You don't see it as a turn. I see it as a turn. <laughs> uh, you see when she starts laughing as a turn? Well, yeah, because then we start to focus on her a little bit more and see that she's not okay. I mean, I could see it. I mean, yeah, it's a turning point in the movie. Mm-hmm. I agree with that part. I just, it wasn't like, maybe that's why I think it was boring is because the turning points were boring. Because it wasn't like, I was like, oh, she just went crazy. It wasn't super crazy or surprising to me. Especially like when she hits him with a thing. I know that was supposed to be a really stunning moment. But it just, like, it didn't have that effect on me. Even with the added sound of the train? Yeah, even with that. So I found that to be interesting because the sound of the train has been integrated in tense moments earlier in the film. Maybe the sound foreshadows that Rose is about to crash, which she does. Did you think about what that sound meant and why why Hitchcock added it to that moment? I don't know if you would think about, like, she's about to crash, but maybe, like, everything's going so fast and you can't keep up with it. Mm. Losing control, maybe. Maybe you're getting run over by the train. Just chaos. I think it added a level of chaos to the scene as well. That's a good point. I didn't even think of that. She starts fading from reality, and she gives in to fear and paranoia. And paranoia runs deep. Mm-hmm. She starts to question whether her husband is innocent, which she had completely known all along that he was. But she starts questioning everything. And she blames this whole situation, her husband going to jail, on her because she needed her wisdom teeth out because she was in pain. But it wasn't her fault. That is a complete jump. She can't blame herself. Exactly. But it, that's why it was kind of like it drove her to craziness. Because it was illogical. Mm-hmm. And it was like an illogical guilt. So there it was it's hard to cure that too, is like when you feel guilty and then but it's really not your fault, but it doesn't matter. You just feel guilty anyways. That's yeah. A tough thing for her to overcome. Mm-hmm. So then Manny puts Rose into sanatorium mental institution. They're similar. So a sanatorium is a health resort or a hospital for chronic conditions. It seemed like a nicer mental institution. Yeah. There is a difference, but I don't even know if sanatoriums exist today. I don't know. That's a good question. I should have looked that up. Sanatorium sounds like a um, scary word, though. It does. Well, so does a mental institution, mental asylum. Yeah. 
Asylum is probably worse. Yeah. Manny puts Rose into a sanatorium. Rose is very different. She, as Manny was, is forever changed. She is much quieter. So when Manny's trial begins, the first shot we get is him holding his rosary below the table. And there are several moments in the film where the left side of the screen, for example, has one character and the right side of the screen has another. And this often happened in in the trial. But his expressions become less subtle as he looks over to O'Connor when he hears all these wild stories and wild motivations to prove that he's guilty by the other lawyer. So two women from the bank are bank. Or insurance, insurance office. Yeah, insurance office. I think. Why did I write bank? That's so strange. Well, it kind of seemed like a bank, but I think that it was an insurance office because he was going to see if he could get money on the. But it was. I could see where you got tripped up there because it, it was not like super obvious. Need to edit my analysis, yeah. I guess. Pre-production, Elizabeth. <laughs> I mean, I wrote. You wrote too many notes, Elizabeth. See, this is why I just fly off the dome, you know, because you don't have to edit up here. Yes, but I can't help <laughs> yeah. but, like, I'm, I'm just a note-taker yeah, person I that I can't help. This is why we're we're good co-hosts. That's You're true. <laughs> You've got the notes. You keep promoting your <laughs> <laughs> And I've got the, um, the hot takes off the dome. So two women from the insurance office are called to the witness stand. They are told to put their hand on the shoulder of the robber. As the first woman walks towards Manny, the camera focuses on her outstretched arm. We then see Manny's subtle facial expression without seeing the hand placed on his shoulder. I liked that moment because we just see her coming and just by his subtle, emotional, excellent acting performance, we know it's, it's on him. So both of the women place their hand on his shoulder, but because of one juror who made a random comment, the case had been declared a mistrial, so they have to go through it all again. After that first trial, how can they call that? A mistrial but like all the other stuff the police did to taint the witnesses that's not a mistrial redonkulous no one says that word often. i just said it i'm gonna say it again ready redonkulous wow redonkulous our criminal justice system is redonkulous i never thought redonkulous would be used in an episode on a 19th 19- that's gonna be the title of this episode no it's called the wrong man that's <laughs> <simple>. redonkulous <laughs> So when he's home, he's in a much different outfit. He's wearing a more relaxed leisure wear, which kind of signals he's given up. And he's tired. He talks with his mom and she encourages him to pray. But Manny is now turned negative and bitter. As Manny looks at a photo of Jesus, the close-up of Manny fades, your favorite, into an overlay. We see a man on the street walking towards the camera. When his face is captured in a close-up, the overlay of their faces stays for a few seconds. And then we watch the real Robert attempt to hold up another store. Mm. That image of the two, I've never seen anything really like really that. Really well done. I love that. I'm surprised nobody, I'm sure somebody has, but it doesn't get copied more, you know? I know. Tarantino likes to copy all sorts of films, like old films and whatever. I'm surprised he hasn't, or anybody hasn't copied. I'll do it. You're going to do it? I copied Peter Fonda with Easy Rider. <laughs> I'll do it with Henry Fonda and The Wrong Man. No problem. Nice. I'm on it. So while Manny is on the job, he's alerted to go to the police station. So he immediately drops his instruments and leaves. When he arrives to the station, he is told the real robber is captured. His smile is back. Manny, along with the audience here from another room, the guilty man is going through the exact same process that Manny endured. I love that. Donculus criminal process. I love that because we saw it happen with Manny. And it's this long process, this life-changing process where you're just like, how is this happening? And then 
we're just hearing it in the next room. Yeah. This guy's going through the same thing. I think they were even given the same number. The witnesses were told to stop when we're at that person is guilty. You know, I almost like it almost to me, I don't know if anyone else thought this, but it, he had some sympathy in his eyes for the guy. Really? That's the vibe I got oh. was like when he was hearing that happen. He was like, that was me. He's like, I don't wish that on anybody almost like he'd been through the process. I just saw sympathy in his eyes, but then it like quickly fades because he's also it's like a mix of emotions. So with like a twinge of sympathy, but then there's that anger and he's like, do you know what you've done to my wife? But was he angry enough? I don't know. Because that's all he says. I mean, it's a short line. It's a powerful line. It's deep. The audience knows how much that line means. But was it the other guy's fault? What happened to his wife, though? Because he didn't. I mean, yeah, he was a criminal mm-hmm. and he stole from all those other people. But it's not like he knew that Manny was a guy who looked just like him and was going to get pinned this crime on him. Well, no, but this all could have been avoided. If the other guy goes to jail. Mm-hmm. You can also anger? speak on the police, too. Yeah, like the anger to me should have been more towards the police and the DA. And it was like, you guys didn't do your job and you did this to my wife. You guys were wrong and did this to my wife. Not, oh, that guy did something wrong. And then by a long string of events, this happened to my wife. So I could see where he wasn't, you could say he wasn't angry enough. I think part of it is just like, he kind of was already defeated at that point. He'd lost everything. And maybe that was the point is, yeah, this guy got caught, but the damage was already done. The trauma was already there. His wife had already gone crazy. His relationship with his sons wasn't going to be the same. Well, they don't really focus too much on the sons. Yeah, yeah but it's, I mean, you could kind of infer it's not going to be the same. Life's not going to go back to normal for him. Yeah. So I think that's kind of his realization. He's like, I could get angry here. Or I could be happy, but it's not going to make a difference because my life is different now. Yeah. Their major problem that they had in the beginning is still their problem now is they're poor and they don't have enough money. So nothing really gets solved for them. Everything just is like a problem was created and then it was taken away, but it didn't really solve any of their other problems. Yeah. Poor guy. Did he write a book about it afterwards? Get some money off of it? In the truth... And what really happened after this, according to IMDb, I'm going to quote directly from them. Manny sued the insurance company over the false accusations and received a $7,000 settlement. But that was barely enough to pay for Rose's stay at the sanatorium. And they moved to Miami, but they couldn't afford to bring the furniture. So the real Manny was very happy about this film. And I think this film is what helped him. I figured. Yeah. So that's good for him. Yeah. It's good for him. I mean, I have a Hitchcock film after you. I mean, you can't fully complain, right? Yeah. You're in the best hands. Yeah. So I'm glad he maybe he was able to find some peace in his life. Well, they never fully got over it, right? They just see it as this nightmare, but it did happen. Yeah. I just hope they were able to find peace with it. Because that's a tough thing. You don't wish that on anybody. Mm-hmm. Soon after... The real guy was caught, the real guilty man. Manny brings a newspaper to the sanatorium to show Rose, but she is still unwell. She seems to have drifted farther from reality by saying nothing matters, she can't be helped, and that he should leave. Manny pleads with her to come home in an emotional moment. He's saying the boys miss her. The boys want her to come back. Mm -hmm. But as the nurse says, miracles take time. So, this is a parallel to his own life. Mm -hmm. Did you know Henry Fonda's wife he had five wives in his life but francis ford seymour 
is I think his second or third wife. I think second, second or third. She committed suicide in a sanatorium. Wow. And this was three and a half months after Henry asked her for a divorce. Jane was 12. Peter was 10. This greatly affected Jane and Peter. When their mom died, they weren't told exactly how she died. Henry told them she died of a heart attack. But a year later, Jane read in a movie magazine. In a magazine, she finds out how her mom died. That's terrible. Peter, he has said that his mom died three times in his eyes. When he was 10, he learned of a heart attack. I forget what the second one is. But the third time, he was 21. Pretty sure this is the third time. And he was talking with a local diner owner in New York. He showed him the same image in this newspaper or magazine or something, but with how she committed suicide. He said, I sat there for two or three minutes, speechless. Everyone else knew, knew everything, but not me. I can't help but think, what was it like for Jane and Peter? It would be my dream. First of all, interview Jane Fonda. That would be amazing. To specifically ask her about this film. I wonder how they felt about him doing this film. I've never heard Jane talk about it. So, as described by his children, Henry Fonda was a complicated man. He was distant, quiet, and judgmental, which only got worse after Seymour died. It was hard for Henry to show emotion if it wasn't for a role. He never improvised and had to stick to the script. Jane successfully improvised in an emotional scene in their film On Golden Pond when she placed her hand on his arm and Henry started to cry. As Manny pleads with Rhodes to come home, he says their two young boys miss her. That moment especially made me wonder how much from his real-life experience did he use in this scene. Based on how Henry is described, it is possible it is this scene where he let his emotions from Seymour's death out to add to his performance. Interesting. I, I don't know. That's tough to, tough to know where an actor draws their inspiration from for any given scene and where his line is of where he'll where he'll dig into so it's tough to know i mean i could see she definitely see the parallels that you bring up but interesting it's interesting yeah there was just so much unresolved peter said after they were told she had a heart attack no one talked about her jane said it was like she had just been erased and that really took a toll on jane she felt guilty because there was one time when her mom came back for a day with a nurse and she didn't go see her which would have been her last opportunity to see her mom while Peter was playing jacks with her, watching this film, knowing that just crazy. Like, yeah, you can see the pain, exhaustion, fear, and shock on Fonda's face so subtly and powerful that you really feel for him. You also feel for Manny because this is an interesting role for Fonda. He normally plays a character who seeks justice and truth for the victim, obviously in 12 Angry Men. Yeah. And... And young Mr. Lincoln, where he plays Abe Lincoln. Oh, he played... I didn't know that. Yeah, that's from the 30s. Okay. Is it good? Yeah, you should find it. I think it's free with ads on Tubi. I mean, it's going to be hard to top Daniel J. Lewis's Lincoln, though. <laughs> is it good? Is he a good Lincoln? It's funny because it's really the nose that's different. Yeah. <laughs> that's really it. But Henry was a big fan of Abraham Lincoln. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Peter talked about it, that he really admired Lincoln. His normally strong, powerful position he is normally in as a character makes it harder for the audience to see Henry Fonda in this opposing role as a victim who needs help himself. This film is very similar to one of Fonda's earlier films called Let Us Live. It's from 1939, where he plays a man who's falsely accused and wrongly identified as a murderer by eyewitnesses. How similar is that? <laughs> yeah, very similar. So in both films, he gets help from his love interest. 
In this film, his wife Rose, and in Let Us Live, his fiance Mary comes to the rescue to prove his innocence. In Let Us Live, Brick, Fonda's character, is much more vocal and angry about being in jail. In both films, Brick and Manny are changed by their jail time. While Manny ends up with hope and prayer, Brick has lost his faith completely. That's another film you should watch. It's only a little over an hour. Yeah, which one is it again? Let Us Live. It's very good. This young Mr. Lincoln looks good. I might check it out. It's classic Henry Fonda kind of role. As a lawyer? Does he give a big lawyer speech? Yeah, I think so. It's been a few months since I watched it. I'll check it out. Some more little trivia. This film influenced Martin Scorsese's Taxi Driver. Really? Yeah. Interesting. I didn't see Taxi Driver. Oh, really? But I mean, I've like seen parts of it. So yeah, this influenced Scorsese's Taxi Driver. Still trying to figure out the parallels exactly, but... Yeah, I guess I'll have to watch Taxi Driver to get the parallels. You should. It's It's a good one. This is the theatrical film debut of Harry Dean Stanton. Who did he play? He was a Department of Corrections employee. Oh. I've seen him in a few films. He had like one scene in Private Benjamin, and it was a life-changing moment for Goldie Hawn's character. Yeah. But I'm a big fan of him from the film Paris, Texas. I don't know. I might have heard of it. It's on HBO Max. Watch it. That film is one of my top favorite films It blew me away. I don't like the ending, which is why it's only a 9 out of 10 and not a 10 out of 10. But it's really good, and you should watch it. It's from the 80s, from like 1984. Cool. Hitchcock purposefully left out some information that supported Manny's innocence to heighten the tension. Interesting. So it's not all true then, technically. I don't know, I guess. They just excluded some information. Which is almost, it can be misleading in and of itself. Yeah. So... The biggest thing that was not true to life was saying at the end of the film that Rose was cured, which she was not. Very strange. Yes. I guess it kind of goes in line with the rules, though. Like, you got to have a nice tied up bow to finish. Yeah, it's true. Thank you very much for joining me. I'm so sad you didn't love the film. It's okay, Elizabeth. I'll give you a couple more shots. To recommend me bad movies. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Oh, that's terrible. I have a good reputation, I swear. I won't tell anyone then, okay? No one has to know that you failed. Just, I'll just cut it out and edit <laughs> All of it? Every time I said it was a bad movie? No. Cut, 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 cut. Well, no, I can't do that. That'd be wrong. It's tempting. <laughs> just play some... Uh, Taylor Swift music right over that part, but then it'll get like that part copyrighted and it will just black it out. Oh, no. But thank you very much for joining me today. Is there anything you would like to plug? Um, everything happens for a reason, guys. That's all I got to say. If you're feeling bad, don't worry. You know, life's going to turn around for you. If you're feeling good, don't worry. It's going to stay like that. So yeah, that's all I really got to say. Thank you for these wonderful quotes to end today's episode with. Elizabeth, I appreciate you so much for having me on. I appreciate that you watched the film. The most fun. Thank you. I had so much fun. This is, there are a lot of topics that I kind of let the guests pick the topics. And this is one that I was really, really excited about because no one else I know has seen it. But now I'm a little nervous because if you're in the room and I say, the wrong man is really good, you're going to be like, no, it's not. Yeah. No, you guys make the decision for yourself, guys. It has good reviews online, so it's not a terrible film. Yeah, yeah. So 
it's not the worst film in the world. So I've seen a, a lot worse films. It just wasn't for me, you know, so. Yes, it wasn't for Cole, but it's a great film. And all right, until next time. And thank you all for joining. Bye. Bye. Special thanks to Cole Echeverria, Dr. Jillian Smith, Caitlin Fitzpatrick, and Helena Amador. This episode was recorded on December 8th, 2022.